The spin is supported by NatWest. Why? Because NatWest loves cricket. The skills it teaches and the communities it creates and want it to be easy for everyone to get involved. To find out about how NatWest is helping make cricket open to all, search NatWest Cricket. It's the spin! I took two days off the cricket this week. Two days! I took the weekend off to play with my niece and hang out with my friends. And in the 48 hours that I took my attention off Crick Info, Jasprit Bumrah took a hat-trick. Middlesex broke the record for a successful T20 run chase. The Kia Super League came to a dramatic climax. And Jimmy Anderson was ruled out for the rest of the summer. So I would like to apologise to the cricketing gods. I will not look away again until the last ball of the county championship is bowled. I'm relying on my guests this week to fill me in on anything I may have missed. Dan Norcross knows everything, so that's fine. And we're also welcoming back comedian Atif Nawaz. Yes, that's right. There are no Australian guests on this episode. But fear not. Our usual level of impartiality will be retained. Which is to say, absolutely none. It's got weird this summer. A tied World Cup final, the miracle of Headingley, and this episode of The Spin. In the next hour, you'll hear Bill Laurie's take on Ben Stokes, Winston Churchill's thoughts about Jack Leach, and how a burning bush almost ruined a cricket world record. Oh, and there's an Ashes series to discuss too. Cricket doesn't get weirder than this. It's The Spin! And this is The Spin, the cricket podcast that will stop re-watching that Ben Stokes innings one day, honestly. I've set my field for today's show. I'm in my traditional spot at Cow Corner. Dan is at extra cover. Atif is at long off. And Michael Atherton watches on from fine leg as usual. We don't have an Australian on the show today, but in the spirit of inclusivity, our loosener is going to be this. Who's your favourite Australian cricketer ever? Dan, let's start with you. Oh, sorry. Favourite Australian <laughs> cricketer. Uh, um, oh, crikey. Have you ever, <laughs> ever been asked this question before? Uh, yeah, people have tried it and I, and I never really engaged with it. I mean, there, there are, obviously there has been a good Australian in the past. There was Victor Trumper, who was a genuinely lovely, lovely man and lost all of his money because he kept on giving away bats to small children. And then tragically died of Bright's disease in 1915 and all of Melbourne came out to see it. And I went to visit his grave. So I, Victor Trumper is is the decent Australian. I got a kind of hankering for Warwick Armstrong because you know the story about him just bowling practice balls for 20 minutes to wind up Frank <laughs> Woolley on his debut. Because in those days, you, you could literally, you could bowl a practice ball on the strip next to the, the pitch and the umpires didn't intervene. You could just keep doing it for as long as you wanted. And Frank Woolley was out there going, you know, is anyone going to bowl? Not at you, mate. Uh, so I quite like him. But I've pondered this, and I'm going to give you my favourite Australian cricketer. Uh, from 1985, he wore Dennis Taylor's glasses, Murray Bennett. And I love him because he was so toothless, and England needed to win the Oval Test match to take the Ashes, and he provided not the least bit of threat. So he's the least scary Australian, and therefore the cuddliest and the loveliest, and had ridiculous glasses. Google him, he looks hilarious. Fantastic. I will. I, that, I, that's not a name I know. I need to go look him up. Um, Atif, do you have a favourite Australian? I do. Uh, my favourite Australian cricketer is Michael Bevan um, because it was the like the, the first time I watched an innings that really kind of inspired me. He was playing for Australia in a World Eleven match against, I think it was some kind of World Eleven 
super ICC series, something like that. And uh, he scored like 170, which was the first time I'd ever seen 170 in a, a one-day international. And I remember at the end of the match, I think Ravi Shastri was doing the post-match interview, and he said to him, what did you have for breakfast? And Michael Bevan said, a cheese omelette. I thought, okay, that's what it is. That's how you become a great cricketer. You eat cheese omelette. So I said to my mother, I've got a match coming up. I want you to make me a cheese omelette. I shall score 170 for my school team. I did not score 170. I didn't even score 17. I didn't even score seven. got three. But did you get to eat a cheese omelette? I got to eat the cheese omelette and uh, it was my first and last, I must say. Oh. Yeah, never got around to a cheese omelette ever again. I love a cheese omelette. I've decided I can't... Actually, it's funny you mentioned Victor Trumper because I can't decide whether my favourite Australian ever is Albert Trott, oh. who was the one who... Uh, he's the only man to have sent a six over the pavilion. Um, and I really like him because he was the last test cricketer, the last Australian test cricketer to actually play for England. Oh, he played oh, for both. Nice, like um, it, like so, it. I, so I thought he's an acceptable Australian yes. uh, to like. <laughs> and then I really... But I honestly really like Jack Fingleton. Um, oh yeah who as well as being a great test cricketer and you know key part of that bodyline side was also is one of the best cricketing writers of all time well funnily enough he wrote victor trumper's biography did he that i read um and it's brilliant really 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 good and he notoriously didn't like bradman did he jack fingleton which is another reason to sort of enjoy him i think because he was somebody who stood up to the bradman myth if that's a thing oh i'm totally with you he also (laughs) he's an amazing writer he left school at 12 because his family couldn't afford for him to carry on at school, he needed to go and work. So he had only education up to the age of 12 and still fantastic writer. The one thing against him is that he uh, featured in that incredibly important six-wicket partnership at Adelaide in 1936-7 when the quizzling traitor Gubby Allen was 2-0 up, captaining England in the first series in Australia after Bodyline. And Australia came back to win the series 3-2 and they reversed the batting order. Do you remember? Because it was a sticky dog. Do you remember? Yeah. Yeah, Do I remember Yeah, of course I remember. I was, yeah, I was eating a cheese omelette watching them out. <laughs> <laughs> On to some yeah. cricket. It was the fourth and final Kia Super League final this weekend. There was a mixture of celebration and sadness at Hove on Sunday as Loughborough Lightning, the Southern Vipers and the Western Storm fought to win the trophy and presumably keep it for good now. Gets to stay on their shelf, you'd imagine. Dan, you were there. Was it a fitting end to the Super League? Do you know, it was a bit poignant, um, if you know what I mean. I don't. Say that word uh, again. Speak French. <laughs> um, it was, there was, I, I don't think there were quite enough people there. I didn't think it was as full as it had been last year. It was very cheap. Five pounds to get in for adults, one pound for children. But there was this sort of feeling that we've spent all of this summer trashing these teams because they're not going to exist anymore. And the players had sent out, you know, their final elegiac tweets saying, I've really liked working with these girls and it's not going to happen again. And you sort of thought, yeah. So, I mean, what really is there in it? I mean, there was still, for me, the Southern Vipers. And they have bedeviled my life for four years, the Vipers, because I don't know if you're familiar with an extremely amusing Derek and Clive sketch called Mona, which is a, a kind of Mickey take of Mr and Mrs, in which one of the questions is, should you mother-in-law come to stay unexpectedly would your husband Len either beat her in the face with a croquet mallet pelt her with rice krispies or drop a basket full of vipers on her head and she then replies I'd have to say the vipers and ever since whenever commentating on the vipers I get this kind of very bad Alan Bennett comes out of me but I'm happy to put that to bed. I thought, as a, in terms of an actual game of cricket, uh, the final was magnificent. It was a really a good night. game. It was superb. And chasing 173 to win is great, isn't it? I, I just felt generally that 
I don't know. I was I was sad, really. I thought this competition for the last four years or four seasons had done wonderful things for women's cricket, and we're getting rid of it. I mean, I suppose we should take the positive, shouldn't we, and say there's going to be eight centres of excellence armed with more and better players, and we'll just get into that, won't we? But right now, no, a small nascent tear is trickling down my autumnal cheek. It's really weird, like if you're a casual fan or somebody who just doesn't know the ins and outs of like you know the hundred coming and all this other stuff. You don't. It's really weird to consider this was the last one. Like me and my nephew watched the final and one of the semi-finals together on um, on the weekend, and you know we were watching it. It was quite exciting, and then you know, Smriti Mandana got out, and it looked like it was over, and then had the night. It was so. The chase was so organised and competent. It was like, you know, he was like, I watched a lot of these games, he said to me. They don't often get the chases. Like, 170 is going to be too much, but they closed it out and we're watching. I think that's really good. He's like, we should go to one of these games next season. I'm like, oh, it's the last one, mate. This is weird enough. We can't go to one of these games. He's like, why? And I was like, I don't know why, to be honest with you. I don't know why. And they've got the 100. They're like, but why can't they play that and this? Like, the men are doing. I'm like, that's a good question, mate. You should, they should put, I don't know how to... They should put you in front of the ACB. I don't know. But it was... I mean, it was very entertaining. And uh, as you say, I mean, it could have been attended a little bit better. But the match was really fun to watch. And you both mentioned Heather Knight's innings. I mean, it's it must have been a great day for her because she's had a pretty chastening oh. summer with as England captain getting completely done over in the ashes. Um, she got to finish the season on a high. She did, and she really does deserve it. I was at Canterbury when England were bowled out for 74. Um, it was devastating just watching her face and seeing her have to go out and face the media, which she did really, really well. And you felt for her because she cares so much. And those ashes were a rude awakening, weren't they? Because Australia have got a a professional system. They've got 100 women who play cricket all the time against each other. And actually, that's sort of the point of this restructuring is that they're trying to get something like 100 professional women players over the next few years so that England will be able to compete. So whilst we, you know, are sad about the KSL going, it's kind of appropriate, really, that Heather Knight, who is a trailblazer for women's cricket, she's taken over in difficult circumstances when Charlotte Edwards was relieved of the captaincy and and that's sort of the whole Mark Robinson era, isn't it? And now that feels like it's bookended and we're going to now start with something. We've got a new. complete blank slate. Mm. New coach, new competition. Well, I also want to speak to someone else who was at the ground on Sunday, a woman called Wendy. But first, I have to tell you how we come to have Wendy's number. Hove is quite a small ground, so most of the press were working in a makeshift media area by the boundary. And Jeff, who produces this show, was working there when these two ladies wandered over from the hospitality suite next door and sat down in front of him. And uh, as we've mentioned before on this podcast, press boxes are quite formal. There's there's no clapping or cheering. But these two women were obviously there to enjoy the cricket. And they were, let's say, extremely enthusiastic. This is what the press box sounded like all day. After Western Storm hit the winning runs, Jeff went to speak to them and find out why they loved cricket so much. And that's when he found out that one of them was Wendy Watson, former England batter who scored a one-day century for England, was capped 30 times, including seven test matches, and was part of the 1993 World Cup winning team. Hello, Wendy. Good morning to you, Emma. How are you doing? Have you recovered from Sunday? No, not yet. I had to come home and yesterday I re-watched the match on the television. <laughs> Couldn't get enough of it. How was finals day for you? That was the best 
experience of, that anybody will ever get of watching women's cricket live that day. All those people were there would go home and be buzzing. Because the games were so good? Because the games were so good, yes. You've actually coached a few of the players who were on show on Sunday, haven't you? I have, yes, indeed. Um, the youngest one there, Sarah Glenn, who's from Denby Cricket Club in Derbyshire. Yes, I've known all her family. She's got a sister who used to play who was a bit older and a cousin who played and a, a dad and his brother play cricket. They are Mr Denby. They're just cricket families through and through. And Jenny Gunn, who is now uh, one of the older states women of the side. Um, I've played, when Jenny started playing cricket, I was still playing cricket for Nottinghamshire. Um, so I've seen and watched and been all around the world watching the girls and really just supporting um, the, the people that I know, Jenny and, um, and Sarah and Georgia Elwis. I coached her when she was about 14 and Sonia um, played... So do you, do you stay neutral in terms of the teams? You just you, you just applaud everybody? Do I stay neutral? Good question. Mm, when it was Loughborough Lightning, I was behind Loughborough Lightning. And, and then when it came to the final, uh, the couple that were sat at the side of me were Western Storm fans. So I said, OK, I'll support Western Storm with you. But I, I would encourage everybody, you know, good cricket is good cricket from either side. Um, and uh, at the end of the day... Cricket wins out, so it doesn't matter who's playing. Really, I'll go and watch. I'll go and watch a village cricket match up the road, or I'll, you know. Well, the men finally got their hands on the World Cup this year, but we know that the women have already won the World Cup three times. What are your memories of opening the batting at Lords in the final? It was 26 years ago, I think, if my, if I can count back that far, um, and I can't even remember what I'm yesterday. Me now, I've got to my age. Uh, <laughs> so. Well, it was a privilege to be allowed to play on Lords, and, and that's the thing from then to now, that it's great that these girls are playing on all the top pitches all around the world. I'd have loved to have battered on some of the grounds that they play on today. I have played at Hove, and I've played at Eden Gardens, Calcutta, and, and obviously at Lords, and the tracks are superb. Absolutely fantastic to bat on if you're a bats person. Yeah. Um, the occasion sort of passes you by. It, it doesn't sink in. And it's so funny because I, I looked at the last time England won the World Cup in 2017 against India, and all I'm picking at is, oh, I remember we had a run out, oh, we had a catcher over the shoulder by Jeanette Britton, and there were so many similarities from that game to our game that rang as memories in my mind and, and went through it, and it was just that was just a super day. We were, we were at Lords that day as guests of the MCC, so... We were all there and it was brilliant. Ah, oh, I'm glad you got to relive it. That sounds yes, fantastic. Yes, yeah. I relive every cricket game when I'm watching it on telly. I'm, I'm almost playing it still with them. In my head, I'm still playing the game. Well, I'm pretty sure producer Jeff told her she weren't playing out there on yeah, Sunday yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much for chatting to us, Wendy. It's lovely. It was nice to hear um, the comments that were made by Dan. Yeah, long may the game go forward and let's hope the 100 is as successful. The KSL has been absolutely superb. Thanks, Wendy. Thank you very much, Emma. Bye. Bye. Oh, oh what a lovely woman. <laughs> and she's enthusiastic about the 100 or optimistic. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think actually from a woman's perspective, it works a little bit better in a way. I mean, I don't mean in terms of the, the format so much as this is going to, I think, strengthen women's cricket and make more professionals out of it i think the arguments are slightly different with the men because the 18 counties are so well established but there are so many women's county teams that 
you know, aren't making money or able to support their own players. You see Worcestershire's players, you know, having to buy their own kit and pay for their own travel. And I know they're going to miss playing for their counties because I've spoken to many women who are, but they've got a slightly different silver lining, I think, in the case of the women, because I think this will dumb up rather than down. And it's on TV. This is a big thing, right? Yep. So some of it is going to be on free TV. And that's, I think that's the first time in a very long time that women's cricket is going to be on TV. Even in sort of highlight form, you don't get to see it on mainstream kind of free to air television. So that's a huge thing. I think really that can't be overstated, the importance of that. Well, let's move on to the other big game of the week, the fourth test at Old Trafford. The big news for England is that James Anderson will not be bowling from the James Anderson end. Recovering from his calf injury, he bowled 28 overs without pain in a Lancashire seconds game against Durham. But in the 29th, he felt a twinge and there's now no chance that he'll play in the rest of the series. Yes, we have Joffre now, but how much of a blow is that to England? It's definitely a blow. I mean, he's, this is, he's one of your most experienced campaigners, right? And he's like, he's legendary, let's face it, right? James Anderson is one of those players that has that kind of gravitas when you walk into a game. He carries that. It's not just right arm over. This is James Anderson, right? This is like, oh my God, this is the guy who's taken so many wickets and these iconic moments. And like, it's a, it's a huge blow. You can bring in any kind of talented fast bowler and, you know, you can argue that fast bowling is fast bowling, right? Anybody with the right conditions and the right control and the right technique can deliver. But when you kind of carry the weight of the achievement that James Anderson has, that's a huge hole you can't fill. I, I, I agree with you, but I think England were in danger of picking a player that they weren't sure about. If he got through that match, they might have played him, and I can't see how he would have been fit enough for a five-day test match, having broken down with a calf injury around about a month ago, and it would have weakened England's tail massively. I think it's sort of a shame that we're may never now see Anderson, Broad, um, Archer and Stokes as a sort of quartet. Which, don't, don't say that to me. No. I'm still holding out hope. Well, I, I still hold out hope, but I just I think that Jimmy might not retire, but I just wonder if over the course of the next 12 months you're going to see those configurations changing and, you know, Stuart Broad, even though I think he's having his best year for a long time, has also done rather well on Sky, hasn't he? And he might start wondering... Do I really want to bowl in Sri Lanka on a feather bed where nobody, no seamers get any wickets or should I be on Sky talking about it? I don't know. So it'll be lovely if they do get together. But I, I do think that Sam Curran might come in. That's an interesting call. I mean, so at the moment, Mark Wood is injured, as is Jake Ball, and Craig Overton has been brought in for mm. cover. He, by my working, is England's ninth choice seamer. <laughs> Something <laughs> like that. He does He does have Ash's experience, two games in the last series in Australia. Is he the right man for a job, even uh, if it's just the job of cover? Uh, I, I wouldn't. I, w- I would pick Curran instead of him because Curran gives you uh, more with the bat. And the batsmen have been the one who struggled. They bowled out for 67, and we're not making any changes. Had England lost that game by 150 runs, which by rights they should have done, then I'm imagining we'd have seen wholesale changes. Might have seen folks come in and take the gloves. Might have seen Bairstow go up the order. Sibley might have come in for Roy. Denley and Roy might have gone, and Pope might have come in for Butler. And you'd have seen a completely different batting lineup. They're sticking with the same batting lineup. And the problem is, I'm a huge fan of Chris Wokes, but. At the moment, he's not bowling enough. For some reason, Joe Root isn't bowling him, and we're always assured that there's nothing wrong with him. But if there's nothing wrong with him, then there's something wrong with Joe Root's captaincy. And so I think there probably is something a little bit wrong with Wokes. And so if you're not getting the overs you need out of him, and he's getting bounced out, 
then suddenly he's not really protecting the tail very much. Whereas Sam Curran has been fantastic with the bat. Every time he's played for England, he came in and saved them in the winter as well as being man of the series last summer. And I don't know that his bowling will be hugely effective on a pacey pitch, but it's a different angle. I think England are going to be relying on Archer and Leach. Do you know what this is? Do you remember the test match? You will remember uh, better than me. When You will, definitely. Uh, when Monty Panesar and Steve Harmison won a game for England at Old Trafford and they seemed to take like half the wickets each and it was spinning and it was bouncing Yeah, and that could be I think the Archer-Leach combo is going to be England's ace in the pack I still expect them to lose heavily and indeed the final test <laughs> oh, and Barney's listening. 3-1 oh, yeah. Barney's, he'll probably get another documentary out of it if that's what happens because <laughs> It's documented quite well in that in, in the edge, which is really fun. I really enjoyed watching that. Old Trafford is like not the worst place in the world to try somebody who's a bit of a, a kind of you know mystery bag. Well, just as somebody a little bit different, right? Mm-hmm. It's not the worst place in the world to try that, especially when you've got the likes of Archer and Leach, as you say, to rely on and Stuart Broad and everybody else is there. So you can try like one bowler who's going to do something a little bit different. He's not the paciest in the world, Sam Curran, but, you know, with the weather the way it's likely to be, mm. there's weather expected, there might be some overcast conditions, it's Old Trafford, you know, like things happen at Old Trafford. So I don't know, he could be the surprise bag and he's kind of been like that his whole career, Sam Curran. He always just does things that he has no right to do (laughs) on a cricket pitch Uh, in a cricketing capacity I've got there's a lot of clarifications necessary there but yeah I mean I don't know I just think he's he's an overachiever and that's not necessarily the worst kind of player to have on your side he won a man of the series despite being dropped for one of the games (laughs) I mean he's been dropped constantly and has yet done nothing wrong a bit like Ben Folkes yeah talking about trying things out so we've got Joe Denley and Jason Roy swapping batting positions at the top of the order. Some people have talked about this as, you know, shuffling the deck chairs on, on the Titanic. I actually think of it as the scone dilemma, whether you put cream on first or jam oh. jam on first. The point being, it makes absolutely no difference because that scone is going to be off your plate in five minutes <laughs> and is going to have disappeared. <laughs> Yes, good point. They're going to be 20 for three either way. Who cares which order they come and go in? It's <laughs> kind of the perfect analogy, isn't it? <laughs> it is, it is. I'm, I'm not sure that I can improve on that. I feel similarly in despair. I would love to be proved wrong, but I don't think that anything's changed. The Australians have got really, really good fast bowlers. We've given them a really, really talkative Duke's ball, and they're up against guys who don't normally open the batting. And also perhaps you know are not far enough into their test careers to be able to withstand some of the best bowling that the world has to offer them and you know the Indians I don't see it's a problem that's going to go away England needs Joe Root Ben Stokes and Joss Butler and Johnny Bairstow to do all the heavy lifting again basically Before we move on to the Australian team uh, we should mention that Ben Stokes retains his place Atif is that a surprise to you? Yeah I thought for sure he'd be like the Prime Minister by now (laughs) I don't know I can't believe he's still playing cricket like he should be selling stuff and cutting ribbons and opening supermarkets and all sorts of things Is that what you thought Boris Johnson was about to announce yesterday? Yeah he's like I'm going to step down and let Ben Stokes run the country and for the first time ever you You'd have a united parliament. Uh, now, I, it's incredible how much people were moved by that innings. Like, it wasn't just the fact that it was an incredible innings, and some people called it the greatest test innings of all time. And I'm, you know, you can debate that, I suppose. But it, it was special. It was incredible to watch and just, you know, absorb it. And it was quite emotional. But it moved people 
on a whole new I mean I'm talking people who were like in tears watching that match oh they, Dan's always you know, in tears they, just ignore him they just lost all uh, just they couldn't couldn't get the words a bit like me right now they just couldn't get the words out right afterwards they were just completely unintelligible and there were journalists who had calmed themselves down and you know had to rewrite things I mean I can imagine test matches like that are no fun for journalists because you're kind of writing copy one way and then you gotta go another way then you gotta have oh. a backup copy and then you gotta you just scrap the whole thing and start all over again and there's a lone thing on your Google Docs just waiting forever that's a, that's a great book waiting to happen by the way discarded cricket journalist pieces something like that that'd be quite kind of fun about you know England, yeah. England losing the World Cup final to New Zealand or things like that I think that'd be quite fun to read well somebody came up with that this year I think some what was it somebody had written about the the World Cup final and actually showed us his workings and I can't remember who it is now but I, think I, I'd, know, I'd, I haven't I'd, seen that I think I'd seen somebody's match report for had England lost and then the match report of what really happened. I mean, that, what's will have been really noticeable is just the sheer cost in electricity as people would have been stuck in the ground till about midnight writing that game up. You had to write suddenly so much more, didn't you? Sports editors saying, uh, I can give you two and a half thousand words. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> also, the pressure of knowing this is the match report that people are going to read. Everyone. You've got to absolutely yeah. write your best that day. The Australians have been in Derby this week for a tour game. Steve Smith, declared fit to bat after missing the last test, scored 23 runs before somewhat uncharacteristically being caught out on the cover boundary of the leg spin of Matthew Critchley, who is presumably now waiting by the phone for an England call-up. Usman Khawaja misses out to make way for Smith. Is that how you two would have picked the side? Yeah, I think so. They're expecting... um Mitchell Marsh to be on the bench with a 12th man that's right. um, and Siddle in Old Trafford again that's not a bad shout maybe yeah I mean absolutely Steve Smith's coming in some way Osman Kwaja just hasn't delivered number three is a big spot and uh, I I think maybe even Steve Smith would come in at four and then Lambishan would come in at three that's probably how I would pick it or organise the top order but yeah absolutely I mean he hasn't really played very well Australia need to close out the series from their perspective they're still you know ahead in the driver's seat so they need to get their best bats and they were gonna they were gonna find a space for him anyway. But I think just because Quaj's form has dipped so far and Lambishan's kind of been so consistent in environments where people around him were not so consistent, uh, it was a no brainer really. I tend to think that they might have made a mistake because I think Kawaja Kawaja, it's very difficult to say his name without suddenly you do becoming love a that name. Kawaja. Um, <laughs> it's difficult. I think he's a quality batsman. I just you watch him and you see his timing and his foot movement, and you just think here is a Test cricketer. And every time a bowler strays ever so slightly straight, he gets whipped through the onside. So it forces you know the bowlers have to bowl straight because he leaves well outside the off stump as well. Now he hasn't scored the volume of runs that you might have expected with his quality, but I think England will be happier bowling at Wade than they will be bowling at Kawaja, and so. I would have done it slightly differently. I would have kept Kawaja at three. I'd have had Smith four, Labashane five. And then that's a horribly nuggety middle because England have got to take these 20 wickets. They're the ones who are still chasing a win, let us not forget. Australia can bat and bat and bat. I would have picked my best six batsmen myself. But um, I get the logic. Wade's got 100 in this series. I thought Wade was going to be dropped because of the way he reportedly played at Derby. I mean, I read Jeff Lemon's report 
and it said you know wade came in rather sulkily and just sort of thrashed at it and then got out and it it looked like a man who either knew he'd been dropped and was sulking or knew he was playing and didn't care. And it turns out it was the latter. So. <laughs> journalists are so mean. Man. It came oh, yeah. rather sulkily. Like, yeah. he could have had a runny nose. Like, you don't know. <laughs> you have no idea what's going on in the guy's life. Like, maybe yeah. just read, like, a sad piece online somewhere. Or just, so just saw a picture of a kitten. I don't know. People can be that yes. expression for loads of reasons. Message to Jeff Lemon. Stop being so mean to your Australian players. <laughs> um, talking of which, um, Australia have flown Steve Waugh back over for this test, despite the fact that he was only supposed to hang around for the first two he went home now they're like sent out the bat signal yeah. brought him back what well, does they, that tell you about the mood in the dressing room well they, they need him don't they because they're emotionally fragile and they're weak <laughs> they're weak-willed people australians they always have been <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I, he just he's he, I, I don't get this overreaction i think just modern cricket has a lot of overreaction in it as well you know like it's even english cricket fans after the last test match they get really excited bless you right you get so like Oh my God, we're the greatest in the world, and you kind of lose a little bit of your WG grace. You know, you gotta be, you gotta be like a bit more chill about. Like, you gotta be a bit more like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We win test matches. That's what we do. And we're like, no, no, we done it. It's the greatest moment in the history of high pitchness. And yeah, so and Australia, and Australia doing the same thing. They've lost a test match in extraordinary circumstances, by the way. That was like the one percenter of test matches. It, it was a test match. They had no right to lose. It just, it was one of those days where something spectacular happened. And they lost it to one man they didn't lose it to the England team well you know there was, there was no. a chap with spectacles at the other end who I think did his bit but I I just think they, oh, there was a massive overreaction for nine tenths of that match they did everything right and they did kind of hold their nerve I think it was really just it was more about Ben Stokes being spectacular than it was about Australia being mentally fragile and this is just it's a waste of a business class yeah. flight do you know it does keep happening to them though don't they if you have a look at uh, the tightest test matches of all time Australia are forever involved and they never get over the line. Well, hardly ever. They usually lose the really tight ones. Uh, the first choice pace attack had a week off for Australia in Derby. The two Mitchells, Stark and Marsh, bowled alongside Michael Neeser. Stark took seven for 85. And we shouldn't forget, he was leading wicket taker at the World Cup. You know, that one that England won. So competition for those Australia bowling spots is fierce. Who would you pick to bowl for Australia at well, Old Trafford? I'd have suggested Siddle. I think England would probably be happier to see Siddle than Stark but they might maybe they shouldn't be because maybe actually they've been trying to avoid playing Stark haven't they because they're worried that he's a little bit loose and so they've gone in with this really really tight approach thinking that if England can only go two and over then they'll lose patience and they'll get out and you know what they've been totally right and England's <laughs> batsmen have been utterly sucked into this incredibly obvious plan so I don't know I mean it's a plan that has effectively worked for three test matches um, I, I still think Australia won at Headingley. I'm still calling it 2-0 in my head because they basically did. And so if they've got any sense, they will go with that. But I think it'd be more fun to see Stark because it'll give us a bit of fireworks, won't it? I don't know. Where are you with that, Art, if you think it's a Siddle situation? I, I think it's a Siddle situation just because of the environment and the fact that it's Old Trafford and cloud cover and also... Stark's had a heavy workload this summer. Like, he's been working really, really hard. He's been playing around the world. He played the World Cup. He was leading wicket. He's performed admirably. Don't get me wrong. He's, you know, one of the world's best, I guess. But he's slightly out of touch and just it's it fits in with the overreaction of the Australian team to just... Like, I, I'm all for, like, you know, just play your best hit and play Kwaja. Play 
play Stark, but I don't think they will. I think they'll play Siddle. And I think it's not a terrible move. I think Siddle would do quite well in those conditions. And you're right, I think England would feel a bit more comfortable with him coming in, but it's almost like overreaction is the, the kind of theme for me. I just think England will look mm. past him and maybe make some mistakes. We've had some crazy cricketing plot lines so far this summer. So I would like your most outrageous predictions for this fourth test match, please. Oh, that's really, really good. Well, Ben Stokes hasn't removed his face mask to reveal Aquaman, or uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> which I think is entirely possible. Um, he could get signed up for the next Marvel franchise, couldn't he? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the umpires, for example, might might actually correctly be able to judge whether the ball's going to go on to hit the wickets or I not. I mean, let's be careful. But we've just no. They've just made Darmasina one of the umpires so, so for this well, next test. So there has been a change, hasn't there? Because uh, Maria Rez was rock and roll. Could you rock and roll that for me? He's back on the field, which yes. I think will be will be great. I think Palia by the way, well just done. nailed it. He's been stood down. That's who Darmasina is replacing. Oh, is that right? They've stood down Palia Gurage. I think they I think is now going to be the third umpire, I believe. And it's because Darmasina is an elite right. on the elite umpiring panel and because of the mistakes that have been made in this series already. They wanted to make sure they've they've got their top people on the But that's bye bye Joel Wilson, which is you know, a great shame. He, I mean, he did really absolutely nothing wrong towards the back end of that test match in quite justly not giving Ben Stokes out LBW and could therefore you, ruining please, the game. Can, can you please listen to this, Felicity Ward, wherever you are? <laughs> <laughs> and Ben Stokes will reveal that he has the solution to the Irish backstop and has been in constant conversation with Giva Hofstadt to bring us to a perfect trade agreement with the EU which everybody from all sides can agree to and they will be dancing in the streets and effigies will not be burnt instead they'll be carried aloft through the streets of Dorking and Biggleswade and all will be smiles and kisses and laughter and the smell of lavender The spin cannot guarantee any of these predictions will come true (laughs) but I do have a good feeling about my predictions for the second half of this podcast which are we will speak to a record breaking club cricketer, hear from the oldest living test cricketer and try to get inside Jack Leach's head. When Utoxeter Cricket Club had to leave their beloved grounds of 60 years, it looked like it might be the end for the area's only club. Enter NatWest Cricket Force, an initiative created to support community clubs across the country. They help them make a new home in a former cricket ground, breathing new life into the space and the team. Why? because NatWest believes cricket should be easy for everyone to play. It's paired up with the Guardian Labs to tell more stories about experiences like these. Read them at theguardian.com forward slash NatWest dash cricket. This message was paid for by NatWest. It's the spin! This is The Spin, the Guardian's cricket podcast, and we really wanted to mention a story we read at the weekend about a feud that's developed between two village cricket teams after a human poo was discovered on the benches of the opposition's changing room. Much like the perpetrator, though, we weren't sure where to put it. Dan Norcross and Atif Nawaz are my guests, and if it seems like this summer of cricket has been going on forever, then spare a thought for our next guest. On the phone is Connor Heap's first 11 captain at Blunham Cricket Club in Bedford. At about quarter past ten on Friday night, Connor set his third Guinness World Record and I'll let him tell you what that was for. Hello, Connor. Hi there, how are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you doing? 
Uh, okay, now we've we've uh, I've had a couple of days rest, so I'm, I'm just starting to feel human again. <laughs> so, uh, just explain to us what you've been doing for the past week. Okay, so for the past week, we've been playing 168 hours of continuous cricket. So that's uh, a full week of cricket. So day and night, all weather conditions, very little sleep, um, and yeah, some, some brilliant experiences. Dan Norcross is here, and he is just mouthing the word how. <laughs> how, yeah. Yeah, how, how, but how, how, I mean, literally, how, because uh, when did you sleep? How did you sleep? What did you, how did it work? <laughs> okay, so effectively, um, there's 24 players, um, so there's a 12th man on each side. Um, you play three-hour innings at a time, and after each game, so six hours, there's a half-hour break where you can uh, eat, basically. But effectively, sleep-wise, you sleep when, you're, uh, when your team's batting. So if you're batting... Six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. You're trying to get your three hours sleep in during that innings. I'd say, on average, people were getting probably around three hours sleep a day. So, would you sleep with your pads on? Because just you in do. case, just in case there was a, like a flurry of wickets and someone just absolutely. has to wake you up and get up. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. If you're if you're batting three um, or four, you've got your pads on and you you're sleeping by the boundary in a camp bed, waiting waiting to be woken up to go in. <laughs> Did, was there were there any instances of batsmen falling asleep at the crease? Not at the crease, but certainly on the sidelines. I mean, uh, there was there was one night where um, the number three was uh, had fallen asleep. Um, he hadn't told the steward where he was, so when they went to find him to to say he's in, there's been a wicket. Um, he was he was very hard to find, but luckily he got another inside. <laughs> I can imagine, like even at the non-striker, the non-strikers end had to get a few like snoozes, and that's where I would do it at the non-strikers end. <laughs> And you're like, yeah, yeah. You're calling, wait, one, two, one, one. no, no, no. <laughs> there, there weren't many quick singles going on, uh, especially at night. Uh, what, what about the umpires, by the way? And, and overall, sorry, I've got so many questions. How many, how many games did you play in total? And, and what did you do about umpires? Um, I, I think it was around 28 games. Who won? Honestly, <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> they were all hallucinating by the end. They have no it, idea what the score was. It, it, it depends. It depends what you call winning. I mean, winning in this respect is actually losing the least amount of wickets because that's how that would effectively mean your team slept the most. Um, <laughs> but obviously, with, with the rules of cricket, most runs win. But I, I honestly could not tell you. Oh, we did have scorers throughout, so they'll be adding up all the deliveries bold, and I'm sure we'll have some figures uh, in the next week or so. I, I heard you didn't even stop playing. <laughs> when the ground caught fire. Yeah, it did. It did. I wish I wish it was as exciting as a lightning strike, but it was actually uh, wood-fired pizzas. Um, some embers blew blew into some conifers just behind and there was a there was a, a fire um, after. Luckily, um, a lot of people on hand to put it out. You had a fire and a monsoon. We did. We, we were just missing the locusts and then we had the full lot. <laughs> and you did keep playing during this monsoon. How long did that last? The rain probably lasted about half an hour, but there was probably about two inches of water on the wicket at one stage. So once that had come down, we were rushing out, brushing off the water, and, and whilst they were continuing playing, of course. Um, <laughs> How were they bowling oh, into a massive puddle? Very full. <laughs> <laughs> just trying to bowl as many full tosses as we could. Uh, so tell us why you were doing this crazy, self-destroying thing. We did it to raise money for two charities. Um, Sue Ryder was one, and the Mind charity was the other. But it was also to raise funds for the for the cricket club as well, um, as we look to expand and um, potentially um, buy a second team ground as well. Oh, fantastic. And do you know how much you've raised yet? Uh, it's around the region of 50 to 55,000. Wow, congratulations. Yeah, thanks very much. So seven days of batting in tough conditions... 
England need an opening batsman who can last more than 20 minutes. How yep. quickly can you get up to Old Trafford? Uh, I'm ready. I'm ready. I've had plenty, plenty of practice this week. I think I've batted for, for 20 hours, so I can I can occupy the crease, but it was a different different um, calibre of bowling, no doubt. <laughs> Thanks so much for chatting to us, Connor, and, and um, good luck with your, your next week of work, which I imagine is going to be an interesting one um, yeah. on all your sleep deprivation. Yeah, it's going to be tough. But yeah, thanks very much. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> thanks, Connor. Wow. They played through like half of the Bible. Yeah, <laughs> they, they really did. You're right. They did the ark. They did the plagues. Uh-huh. I mean, the only great shows, I, I was sort of half hoping that an escaped lions might have charged onto the outfield <laughs> at some point, but no. On the last episode of The Spin, we asked, where were you during the Ben Stokes and Jack Leach innings? And you didn't let us down. Thanks for all the emails and tweets. We've read them, and these are definitely our favourites. Dan, would you like to read yours out first? Yes, I'd love to. It's from Mark. And he says, I was relaxing with the family on holiday in Croatia when I read that England was 67 all out at Headingley. After that, I decided to pay the game scant attention and earn some brownie points, given criticism from my lovely wife that I'd been not present for large chunks of summer vacations, always listening to Test Match Special or an earpiece as we drove, hiked, camped or surfed. Listening to it while you're surfing, that is impressive. So when I checked the score on day four, I learnt Root had fallen quickly and Julie returned to reading my book by the pool. At my next check-in, hours later, Archer was batting and I told my 14-year-old son that we had no chance. My third glance at the score showed Stokes on about 80, England 9 down, Leach at the other end. I followed the action from the BBC text updates, not daring to move from my spot as Stokes increased the tempo and won the game. We went for a celebratory hike down to a remote cove for a late afternoon swim and was soon approached by a guy who had swum ashore from a yacht to sunbathe and drink mojitos. He heard our English accent and told us he was Australian and started gloating about the cricket. Evidently, he hadn't seen the score since he left the yacht and assumed Australia had retained the ashes. <laughs> I let him finish, then methodically informed him of all the details of England's win. Once I'd gone through the innings a second time, I think he was beginning to believe me. I enjoyed wiping the smile off a smug Aussie's face. <laughs> I can only imagine how Ben Stokes felt doing the same to millions of them. Oh, Mark. Oh, it's lovely. Uh, I would have loved to have done that. Can you imagine the joy in that? <laughs> well done, though. Well done for, for wiping the smile of a smug Aussie's face. I quite like that he went for a celebratory hike. I think that's underrated. Celebratory hikes are the way to go. That I think feels, it's insane. It feels yeah. very British. Yeah. I th- although it should have been a celebratory yeah. ramble. Hattie, <laughs> would you like to read your email? Yes, please. Uh, I've watched the game for nearly 60 years, and from my home base in Dundee, I was eagerly awaiting the third test, and in particular, day four. I had been to Lords, the Oval, the SCG, the MCG, the Basin Reserve, the Wankaday Stadium, the Colombo Cricket Ground, Snedden Park, Hamilton, Malahide, the Grange, Queen's Park, Oval, Port of Spain, Eden Park, Heckley Park, Durham and Cardiff to watch international cricket, but never to Headingley. So myself and three colleagues bought tickets for the Sunday, secured return train tickets from Dundee and booked a hotel in Leeds. What could go wrong? England 67 all out on day two is what went wrong. At this point, two of my comrades pulled out. It will be over by day three, they said. Undeterred, my friend Colin and I boarded the train on Saturday morning. By lunchtime, Australia were all out in their second innings and when England slumped to 15 for two, we decided to leave the train at Edinburgh and return to Dundee, securing the knowledge that England would not get within a country mile of the required record run chase. 
how wrong we were. On Sunday, I was a broken man sitting by the radio in my garden, crying into my beer as Stokes produced a once-in-a-lifetime innings, although I hope I'm wrong about this too. Any ideas how I should approach Old Trafford? That's from Sean in Dundee. Well, mate, we all make choices that we often regret. Thanks for sharing, everybody. Remember, if there's something you'd like us to discuss on the show, you can get in touch with us anytime. Tweet me at M underscore John or email us at thespin at theguardian.com. We promised you our interview with Eileen Ash a few weeks ago and we've teased it long enough. We were thrilled to find out during the second Ashes test at Lords that MCC were unveiling a portrait of Eileen. She made her test debut in 1937 and at 107 years young, she's the oldest living test cricketer. After seeing her portrait in the President's Box for the first time, she and I sat down to chat and I started by asking her how she first got into cricket. In 1936... I worked in the civil service and um, I heard that there was women's cricket going on in the civil service and I thought, well, I didn't know women played. And then I heard that if you played for the civil service, you got two or three days off to play. I joined and the next year I was in the England team, as probably as that. So um, I was very lucky, but Marjorie Pollard, had a lot to do with that because I went on a cricket week with, with them and she was our captain and she put me on to bowl and I could bowl for ages and I kept a good length and got a reasonable result and um, from then on I, I just um, loved it. I was just lucky that I, I played cricket with my brothers and um, in my father's team occasionally and it was just one of those things. It got you time off work, which... <laughs> well, I worked hard for it. <laughs> and you played with um, people like Myrtle McLagan and Betty Snowball, who they were described as the Hobbs and Sutcliffe of the women's team. No, um, the, the captain, Molly Hyde, was a brilliant batsman and she was always so elegant when she was batting and she was one of the best batsmen I've ever seen. Did you enjoy the overseas tours? I know that they were quite expensive for all of you. You had to do things like raise funds in order just to go and play in Australia. Father helped a bit (laughs) and um, we had to pay pay for everything, passage and and, um, when we were in Australia we were put up in hotels and all the rest of it but uh, otherwise we paid our way but now of course (laughs) they get everything don't they what was the voyage like because you spent weeks at sea in order to get to australia didn't you three weeks to get to perth and then we had a, a, a test at perth but no it was lovely on deck everybody spoiled us they put nets on board and passengers, you know, watched us. And, no, we had a wonderful time. It's like a holiday. And, of course, as a team, we gelled because we were together for three weeks and we were an excellent team. I still knew one or two of them, but they died a, a few years ago. But they're all up there, you know, playing cricket, yes. You've played at grounds like the Oval and the MCG. What was the biggest crowd you ever played in front of? Um, Hove, we had a good attendance. The Oval, we had a good attendance. People came to watch us because they didn't think uh, women could play cricket. They were amazed and um, 
Well, we were pioneers in that day, yes. I read that you got 20,000 when you were playing in Adelaide. Yes, and we got a lot in Sydney as well. We got a lot of um, shouting at the mound. And you lost some of your best cricket-playing years during the war because just after you'd made your test debut, the war came along and people weren't really able to play much cricket anymore. We played against the um, service 11, I think, but um, there was no cricket played. You had quite an important job. You were quite busy doing things for the war effort, weren't you? Oh, yes, yes, yes. I tried to get into the RAF, they wouldn't release me, and then I tried the Army, and then I tried um, Navy, and they wouldn't release me, and I tried the Fannies, they were driving VIPs around in the city, you see, and they wouldn't release me, and and they got so fed up with me that they sent me to MI6. And did you catch a few spies while you were there? Hundreds of them, yes, hundreds of them. That's why England's free now. (laughs) You were at Lords to watch the women lift the World Cup last year. In fact, you rang the bell at the start of play. How do you feel about the future of women's cricket? Oh, it's taken off and we're as good as the men now. The fielding, the batting's good. Probably the bowling's stronger there, but... um, no, it's taken off and, and youngsters love playing. Are you looking forward to the Commonwealth Games next year when the women will be playing uh, in Commonwealth Games for the first time? Well, hopefully, yes, yes, I'm still here. What a woman. I should also mention that after we finished chatting, she reached into a bag next to her chair and pulled out this beautiful old cricket bat and she told me it was Don Bradman's. Wow. wow. I got to hold a Don Bradman bat, which... Was he, it really light? It was really light. It was so light, Dan. Yeah. It was like a feather. Um, and it was that beautiful old, you know, what is that? It's not chocolatey colour, but, you know, I that know. kind of, that dark, like dark, walnutty yeah, mm. colour. Um, yeah, and he, she had admired it. I think we're talking, you know, 50, 60 odd years ago, she had admired it. And he had just handed it to her. Oh, wow. How exotic. But being Bradman's bat, I'd just have to stick it on the fire. <laughs> <laughs> so, we've all reminisced about Ben Stokes's innings enough. Said no one ever. Every time I rewatch that epic fourth innings miracle, I can't help wonder what was going through Jack Leach's brain as he stood at the crease trying desperately not to screw things up. At even Dan, could you help me? Yes. Dan, perhaps you could describe the action in the style of the late Australian legendary commentator Bill Laurie. And Atif, we'd like you to play the part of Jack Leach's inner monologue. As Pat Cummins runs into bowl to Jack Leach and England need two to win. We'll see how it goes. So here he is, a glorious figure of Pat Cummins. He's so tall and Australian and magnificent. And this weedy Englishman. And all he can do is tear around the corner. He's rubbish. Totally rubbish. No round there. Not going to get anything from that, you specky four-eyed git. No chance. Still need two to win. No chance with you there. I wonder if there's a sale on at Specsavers. Goes back to his mark now, Pat Cummins, and look at him. He's just, he's, he's, he's hunting meat. He wants this English wheat, this pommy bastard. He's got to go. Get him out. And it's the ashes. The ashes for Australia. The beautiful Peggy Green. I sleep with it every day. Bill, Tony, Richie Benno, the lot of you. This is what it's all about. Winning the ashes. Winning in England. Beating the English. Beating the palms. You've got to do it, mate. It's now or never, Pat. Come on, Pat. One is the loneliest number you can ever find. 
Here you go, Ben Cummins. All right, let's take him out. Let's take the points off. No, he's standing around the corner. They're going to run. No, no, it's a toy. Oh, what's happened? The baggy green has been despoiled. Hmm. It's nice from this side. Oh, Struth. And now the bloody Kiwi bombs at the other end now. We're going to lose. He's just ready and waiting. He's going to destroy us. He's going to destroy the baggy green, the wombats, the kangaroos, everything we love and hold dear. The red back, the white back. Aussie rules, Aussie no rules. We just need to get him out. We've got to get He's not going to get out, is he? He's not going to get out. No, I can see it all now. They're coming back at us. The bloody bombs are coming back like they always do. Like Terminator 2. Maybe I should get a tattoo. What him? What's he doing now? He's putting the bloody pitch. Don't let him put the pitch. If he's put the pitch, the ball said he's going to do nothing. He's going to smash it through the covers. I know he is. I know. Those slips there, those proud Australian men. Like a Gallipoli. Wallop! No! Bing! Over! Over, Skidamas! Good night, Charlie. Back in a pavilion with all of you. As being one of the most despicable and outrageous comebacks I've ever seen. I am disgusted. Absolutely disgusted. <laughs> I've got to be a shoo-in for Man of the Match. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you did the heavy lifting there, Dan. Thank you. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Thank you guys so much. That was a joy. <laughs> One absolute joy. I've relived this game twice already. Once watching it again on Sky and once listening again to the final over on Test Match Special. And that one was my favourite. Oh, Thank you. Well, thank Jack Leach and Bill Laurie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not bad at all. Not bad at all. Those the celebrations are incredible, man. Were they? Like, I understand when people overreact and say it's one of the great... I think it's probably one of the ten greatest sporting moments in English sporting history. I'd, I'd go with that. And on that note, it's time to say goodbye to Dan Norcross slash Bill Laurie uh, and Atif Nawaz slash Jack Leach. Who knows what once-in-a-lifetime cricketing unicorn will have witnessed by the next time we're all together. There's still plenty more to come from this epic summer of cricket. I'll leave you with Winston Churchill and his description of Jack Leach's heroic final stand. See you next time. From Edinburgh in the north to Invercargill in the south, the Australians have drawn a squiggly and irregular line. It falls to the brave yeoman class of this beleaguered isle to resist. And at this very moment, there is none more brave and more yeoman than Jack Leach, for he will fight these scoundrels, these mountebanks. He will fight them at the Certified Accountants Annual Awards in Western Supermare. He will fight them at the North Chigley Summer Bring and Buy Sales. He will fight them at the Back Office Payment System Seminars of Basingstoke. He will never surrender. That's just... That's Jack Leach. The Spin is supported by NatWest. To find out about how NatWest is making it easier for everyone to get involved in cricket, search NatWest Cricket.